Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We'll also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Well, Andrew, welcome back. Uh, I am excited. We are going to kind of record a little kickoff to season number two. So kind of crazy to think that uh, it's it's January and we've got, I think, 20 episodes in the bank and <laughs> and uh, kind of looking at, at 2023. Yeah. Who would, who would have guessed we, had, we would have hung around and made it this far? <laughs> I guess people actually do like somewhat listening to what we have to say, huh? There you go. Or maybe yeah. it's more so our guests. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my guess is it would fall off pretty hard if it was just the two of us. But um, no, I'm I'm really excited. I I, I think one of the things that um, just kind of the feedback that I've gotten is that um, you know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot happening in agriculture. There's new technology coming out, and then really trying to understand certain. Denise disease mechanisms and opportunities to think about products and and the way we use the tools we have differently and stuff like that. So I guess just kind of excited. We've, we've got a couple episodes um, recorded and, and we've got some great guests coming up. So I guess tease, uh, tease everybody a little bit about what's coming up in, uh, in 2023. Yeah, I, th- I think we are uh, like, like you said, we got two recorded. Um, we're, you know, we're lucky enough. We got the, uh, master weed scientist from Purdue. Um, we're going to be picking the brain from the who's who and the the man himself uh, talking about white mold from the University of Wisconsin. And then we got some coming up. You know, I, I think there's a lot of new new products and just new management um, systems uh, along with some, you know, just different strategies um, in, in rootworm control and some other things, re, you know, regarding disease. So we're going to be able, I mean, we're going to be picking the brains from, you know, the, the, you know, the, the people that have done research on, on different, uh, management tactics and, you know, whether it's insect or diseases. So we're going to be picking the brains on, you know, going in depth and, and talking the science behind rootworm management. Um, we're finally going to put a, a, tie a bow on our tar spot discussion. Yeah. You know, we got the, the, uh, the, the expert from Purdue, uh, coming in and talking about that. And then I'm excited, you know, we got, uh, a world-renowned crop physiologist that has studied the effects of heat and drought on, on crop growth and development. So we got him coming in from the University of Missouri to talk about that. So between what we already have recorded and the guests we have lined up, it should be pretty entertaining to kick off 2023. Yeah, I'm super excited. I would encourage all of you, um, you know, stay tuned in, keep listening, and we really do appreciate your feedback. So as uh, as you listen and enjoy the show, um, you know, we we know it's it's tricky to try and fit an hour-long podcast in, and, and we try and keep it concise, but it's tricky when you have, it's tricky when you have a uh, uh, you know, the, the type of guests we have, there's just a lot, there's a lot to cover and, and we want to make sure we're thorough, but keep giving us feedback. We appreciate, we've actually had a couple people, uh, reach out on social channels and, and recommend guests or topics. We appreciate that feedback yep. and, uh, and frankly, just appreciate those of you that have, have, uh, have stuck with the show. So look forward to 2023 and, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be into it soon. Awesome. See ya. Cheers. Well, welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts. Uh, kind of excited. Um, 
this is the first time I guess we've done this, Andrew. So introduce both of our guests. Yeah. So, you know, we, we mentioned last episode, we were uh, having our, our first guest on for the second time. And that was Matt Nelson. And so we're, we're trying something new just because of our guest. Uh, he's going to be a, a, a co-host this time. So Matt, welcome. Yeah, I'm happy to be here uh, co-hosting in a different capacity. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is fun. Especially excited because I get to talk to another another person in the weed science world, which is, Bill, as you know, a small one. Um, so a little bit more about my background um, for those of you um, who've maybe tuned in before or haven't. Um, I'm a technical agronomist here in central Iowa like Andrew, and I've got a weed science background. Bill, I got my master's with Greg Kruger out at Nebraska. And um, I'm with that. I'm going to. I've called you Bill a few times. It's probably time to introduce our guest, Bill Johnson, from the University of Purdue, who we're excited is is here with us today. Tell us a little bit about your background, Bill. Where you're from, where you went to school, and uh, then we'll jump into the interview. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a it's a nice uh, cold, snowy day here in in uh, West Lafayette, so I'm excited to join you guys and have a discussion about weed science. I never. Uh, I never missed too many opportunities to do that. So I grew up in the Midwest. I'm originally from the Northwest part of Illinois. Um, got my bachelor's degree at Western Illinois. Um, did my graduate work at the University of Arkansas. Uh, worked up in the Fort Dodge area for a couple of years after I got out of uh, graduate school. Then I was at the University of Missouri for seven years and I've been here for 20 years. So I've kind of taken this long circuitous path around the uh, center part of the country and I've kind of landed here in Indiana, and this is uh, most likely where I'll finish out my career. Well, we we appreciate you joining us, Bill, and it, and it's uh, uh, appreciate all the guests that take time. We start our show in a similar fashion every week, and so we like to ask our guests, uh, tell us what you're the most excited about in agriculture right now. Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I, I think uh, one of the things that, that, that gets people kind of excited is, is obviously when there's new innovations coming along and trying to figure out, um, you know, where, where that's going to fit within our weed control systems. So whether it's uh, technology or um, more implementation of some cultural practices, I think uh, th there's a lot of activity in, in both of those areas right now. Some of it's going to stick, some of it's not going to stick, um, but certainly I think uh the, the weed control world is going to look different in five to 10 years than it looks right now. And I think a lot of the things that are that are being evaluated right now are going to are going to help us uh, um, make an impact on this war on weeds. I, re I really like that answer. That, that kind of ties in with one of my questions we'll, we'll address here later in the episode, you know, as far as weed management and where we don't want to go based on what we see in Australia. Right. So. <laughs> Well, uh, let, let's get started here. Uh, you know, I, I thought it would be important for our listeners to get a, get a you know get some professional insight on on weed management because you know as, as we make this transition to uh, you know a, a lot more soybeans getting planted before corn, it, it opens the door for um, some potential issues with with our herbicides and our residuals um, in in you know just just getting a, a grasp on an already hard situation. So so let, let's let's start with this this uh, new trend that we see across the corn belt with a lot of growers starting to plant soybeans before corn. So so what are so, some of your initial thoughts on this, uh, Bill? You know, in, in regards to weed management and, and residuals, post timing, you know, all all the stuff that we commonly deal with, but may, maybe a little bit different with this situation. Yeah, so um, I still remember my early days at the University of Missouri in the 1990s, and, and our agronomist there, um, he, he was just dead set on this idea that soybeans tolerate cold weather much better than, than corn does, and he was always surprised at, 
um, that we hadn't, you know, evolved down this pathway a little bit, a little bit more rapidly. So it, it's interesting now to see this trend finally gain a little bit of traction in the production world. And one of the things I, I, I well, there's there's a couple of things I think we need to think about. You know, number one, um, putting that residual out about a month before we normally do um, can create a couple of challenges. Um, one challenge is, is you know, if, if these soils stay cold, there really won't be a lot of um, a lot of weed emergence. And so we may miss or, or the herbicides may have um, maybe dissipated to a low enough concentration that we miss a lot of the weeds that are going to come up in May if we're looking at some of these early April planting and pre-application dates. I think the other thing that we don't have a great handle on yet is some of the residuals that are a little bit more active on soybeans. Um, what's that going to result in in terms of some some stand issues and some um, early season growth issues when we really need to get those soybeans up and growing to, to form a canopy? So I kind of look at those two major issues as sort of some unanswered questions right now. Um, so I know there's a, there's been a few research projects initiated around the Midwest, but I think many of us are, are probably a year, two or three behind where the growers are in terms of adopting this technology. My, my read on it is I, I think a lot of the growers that are adopting this technology are not, are not, um, not using residual herbicides to the same extent that the growers that, um, that plant at the normal times are. I think they're relying more on a post-emerge weed control strategy. But certainly, if we're going to tackle this resistance problem in a more sustainable way, the residual herbicides have to be a component of that. So you mentioned herbicide injury. And, and that, well, you, you make me feel better as an agronomist, Bill, because I've been pounding the drum of trying to make sure we're, you know, obviously getting a pre-on before we plant is good, but they've got to match up. And just to let you in on what happened in Iowa this year, there was a, about a four-day window in late April where conditions were good enough to spray and a lot of pre's were put out. And then in soybean, a lot of those fields were not planted until late May. And okay. in between, it was cold. Yeah. So not a lot of activity, not a lot of weeds emerging. And we had, I think, weedier fields than we had expected. And a lot of farmers felt good about when they got their pre's on, only to have weed control be less than they expected because of that, you know, desynchronizing of when they sprayed versus versus when they planted. Yeah, absolutely. And then And then we planted in late May, and we were quickly followed by you know, really, really heavy rainfall in, in two or three, you know, really significant mm -hmm. rainfalls, three, four inches at a time in, in the span of a couple hours. And those were only spread out by a few days. So we went from, um, you know, cold and wet to then started to warm and then just completely saturated. Um, it kind of looked like Minnesota here for a couple of weeks. So <laughs> it was uh, less than ideal for sure. One of the questions that we get a lot and, uh, not trying to pick on any products in particular. This is just a question farmers always have, Bill, is those, as we think about those PPO products pre that, you know, sulfentrazone and flumioxazine, those are two of the main active ingredients. Is there any, any difference in terms of what weather conditions could lead to injury with each one of those actives, or is it both kind of the same set of conditions? Yeah. And actually there's probably a third one to add to that list too. I mean, Metribuzin has right. historically been, been kind of hot on soybeans as well. So, you know, our, our, our standard message has always been with, um, with sulfentrazone and metribuzin, there's a genetic component to that. Um, there, there's a fairly um, traceable uh, gene that, that leads to more tolerance in, in varieties that, that tolerate metribuzin or, um, or sulfentrazone. Now, it's not, it's not the same gene, 
Um, but but there's a genetic component to that. And, and when you put that susceptible variety out there and combine that with some challenging weather conditions, cool, wet soils or splashing rains at the crook stage, uh, that can really result in some situations where stands are, are diminished and sometimes replanting is needed. With Valor, on the other hand, um, there, there hasn't been a real clear genetic link to that, uh, but that one seems to be more weather related. And so, you know, really for, for so, so I, I had my very first master's student at the University of Missouri worked on sulfentrazone and, uh, and flumioxazine. And for, so I've, I've had experience with that chemistry dating back to the mid-1990s. And what I've observed over time is obviously as these soybean varieties shift a little bit from year to year in terms of the genetics that get put out there, some years we end up with a bunch of genetics that are sensitive to sulfentrazone. And then we'll kind of evolve out of that a couple of years later. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see kind of rashes of, of injury on certain varieties with sulfentrazone, whereas with flumioxazine or the Valor-based products, um, you know, if we have a whole bunch of beans that are planted and then we get these hard pounding rains when the beans are in the crook stage, we'll have a bunch of beans that, that show uh, flumioxazine injury, but we've never traced that back to a specific, specific line or, or genetic event. So my, my, the, the long answer or the short answer to this, to the longer part of the answer that I gave you earlier is I think they're, they're, I don't think one is worse than the other, but what I always encourage my growers to do and what I've done all along is I, is I've always asked them, you know, do you know whether or not your variety is sensitive to sulfentrazone or metribuzin? If you don't know that, ask that question. Um, some seed companies used to used to produce promotional materials that would indicate which ones were safe and which ones required more management. Um, I think now uh, a lot of that information, you, you have to dig a little bit deeper to get it. Um, you know, the old Sencor labels used to list the varieties that had been tested for, for right. sensitivity. And, and, you know, now I'm, I'm not aware of anybody. I think Arkansas is doing some testing with some of the southern varieties, but I'm not aware of anybody doing that with the Midwest varieties. So again, they all have injury potential. But again, the other thing that I tell people is if they're working on your beans, they're working on your weeds. And so sometimes you have to take a little bit of crop stress in order to, to get some activity on the weeds. Beans have a, a wonderful um, potential to be able to recover and grow and yield normally if you get the late season rainfall events. And so you know, I've, I've never gotten nearly as stressed about early season injury as some other people do because I kind of know what things are, what things can look like at the end. Yeah. Well, your, your comment kind of ties in with uh, what I was going to ask you later. If you ain't burning, you ain't killing, right? But we'll, we'll talk, uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll talk later as we get into, uh, um, you know, some of the foliar discussions. So, you know, as we talk about residuals too, you know, we, we kind of talked about metribuzin, um, you know, it's one of the more common group fives that we use, right? Do, do you think that, that we need to be um, looking at, um, you know, the some of the varieties that are maybe more susceptible to metribuzin damage as an industry as a whole? I, I, I would really like to see it because I, I've seen tremendous growth in the, in the demand for using metribuzin in my geography. So Indiana, Ohio, Southern Michigan, Western Kentucky. We'd like to add it to our burn down herbicides to help out with mare's tail. It gives us another residual against water hemp. And, uh, you know, I think there's just a, and, and, and the price of it has always been somewhat favorable. It's a little mm -hmm. bit higher now than it used to be. Um, but nonetheless, I, I really think that would, that would benefit our farmers a great deal. And then we would have more people talking about that active ingredient. And for the folks that are, 
you know, that maybe had a really bad experience with either Valor or Authority, that would be one that they could rotate to for a couple of years if we can get that grower lined up with the right uh, soybean genetics that aren't sensitive to metribuzin. Yeah, no, I, we've talked to, Andrew and I have talked about this over the, the fall, Bill. You're, you're absolutely right. It's in it, I think, uh, working with Megan Anderson at Iowa State, we had a lot of metribuzin injury this, this spring. And we, we, we went through and we were able to determine most, I think all companies really um, are doing that screening either in a lab or it's genetic based. It's not, you know, mm -hmm. any sort of field screening. And obviously the weather will make a big impact there, but it is something I think we need to be aware of because at least in Iowa, Bill, we're not using anywhere close to the full labeled rate of metribuzin that we could be using. And we're still seeing injury. So if someone is going to start raising that rate, they'd really better know, their tolerance from a varietal standpoint. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. If we're going to stay ahead in this water hemp battle and, and some of the other weeds as well, I, I really think we need to take a lot of these premixes and further evaluate how much active ingredient we're putting out there for water hemp. And we need to get one of those jacked up. I mean, we need to get up there towards some meaningful biological rates is, is the terminology I use. So with with that comment and talking about this this water hemp battle, we're getting told often that we need to stack residuals or layer residuals, right? So so walk me through walk me through your thought process about overlapping residuals. Should we be using the same active and stacking the same active? Should we be using multiple modes? And then why is it so much easier to protect bare soil than kill uh, emerged weeds? Yeah, yeah, great question. So I, I actually have, have a son that works in the retail industry. So he's you know up to his ears right now and, and uh, <laughs> placing uh, programs on, on fields. And um, so I bet you know, he calls dad a lot during those conversations. Huh? <laughs> yes. Yes. Good to have yeah, an expert and, you know, in your with, back pocket. With prices, with prices where they're going, it's sometimes you're um, these guys will come in with a set dollar figure that they want to spend. And they're not always thinking about the end result. You know, mm -hmm, what, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm spending 35 or 40 bucks an acre, which is where I was last year. But what is the end result going to look like? So it's always kind of an interesting puzzle to put together. But anyway, getting back to your question about um, layering residuals, you know, I, I like the idea of, of utilizing a group 14, whether it's a valor or authority with some other mode of action pre that other mode of action that you use as the pre-emerge. Um, herbicide kind of depends on what other weed species you have and, you know, and really your, your tolerance for injury, what soil type you're on and those sorts of things. I think one of the things that, that we're seeing an awful lot of now is there's a group, four, there's either metribuzin or a group 14 going out with a 15 pre and then we're layering on another 15 post. Well, given the fact that we're using a 15 in corn, uh, pretty frequently as well. That's a lot of selection pressure out oh, yeah. there. And yep. so my, my longer term worry is, is this group 15 resistance. And, and that one, you know, that one's going to eat our lunch because what we've been able to determine about group 15 resistance is it's metabolic resistance. <clears throat> and this metabolic resistance can give you resistance, not only, um, not only to, um, you know, to the group 15 herbicide, but it can occur, it can, um, it can cause resistance to other herbicides as well. And so we may be inadvertently putting some other resistance mechanisms in a weed population that we didn't intend to just because we're selecting for metabolic resistance. I, I just listened to a video or re-listened to a video of a recording of Dr. Hartzler's discussion on metabolic resistance. 
And, you know, that's something I wanted, we'll probably get into a little bit later in this episode, episode, but man, if you're scared about target site resistance, you should be really scared about metabolic resistance. You know, one, two quotes that really stood out are you, you can be resistant to a certain MOA and, and, you know, we, we always talk about cross resistance with target site resistance, right? But with metabolic resistance, you could be res- resistant to one mode of action and, and then be resistant to a totally different mode of action because of that, right? Right. And, and then and, also and there, there the other- could have been very little selection pressure for that second resistance that's Yep. Um, that, that shows up with metabolic resistance. I think that's that's the scary thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and then the other comment that stood out was he the the professor I think it was out of Nebraska that was doing the research said with with metabolic resistance you could be resistance to active ingredients that you've never sprayed or never haven't been discovered yet. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's actually a fun example just to get in the weeds here. I, I, that pun was going to have to come up at some point, Bill. Um, <laughs> There was a paper from Nebraska, I think, where they looked at just to, to talk about resistance in the way that weeds, you know, it, it's, it's crazy how the science works with resistance. They were looking at um, a new ALS tolerant sorghum bill, I believe, and they had screened some sorghum populations from Northeast Kansas and Northwest Missouri, but fields that had not been sorghum for 20 years and had not seen ALS herbicides since. And when they went back, not only were those... Um, populations of water hemp still resistant to those ALS chemistries at the same levels or, or greater, they found the same resistance that was being genetically added to sorghum. That same method mm-hmm. of resistance was naturally occurring in some of those weed populations. Mm. They just, they just yeah. found it as they screened, which is again, just remarkable what some of those populations can do. Totally. It's a lot more scary than, than target site resistance. Well, yeah. And I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, to the I'd call myself the average consumer, right? You, I, I don't think you realize the 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 battle going on in the background, right? Yeah. Um, yep. You know, we just think, well, give me more, give me some different chemistry or whatever. And so that's, uh, I don't know if that's encouraging or <laughs> discouraging, Matt, but that's, uh, I suppose that's why we've got to have good, good people, uh, good people available to us. So um, we're going to take, uh, we're going to take a break in our show and, and come back with, with Bill and, um, talk some other resistance and, and best plans for your chemistry plans for 2023. Um, but, uh, we got to get Matt out of here. Uh, Matt, thank you for joining us today. And, uh, yeah. Before I go, uh, I have to ask this question to a fellow weed scientist. What you have to have a favorite weed build. Do Uh, do you have one you could share with us? Oh gosh. Yeah. It it depends. It depends on the, on the time in my career, I guess. (laughs) I'm working on water hemp early in my career, mare's tail, giant ragweed. We're kind of back to water hemp now. Um, so it just kind of depends on what pops up. That's, that's a, you know, it's a great field for people with short attention spans. So that's, that's what makes it great for someone like me. <laughs> nice. Well, I uh, appreciate it so far, uh, Bill, we'll, we'll talk soon. Okay. Sounds good. So Bill, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about, you know, the group 14 PPOs. Um, you know, we have our, our foliar PPOs, you know, residual PPOs. Um, let, let's talk about, um, you know, the, the, the residual PPOs and, and what really matters when it, when it comes to the residual and, and the, the timing of application, how that kind of ties together, you know, is it, is it, is it the K, what are you looking for when you're looking for a, a PPO that has, you know, that long residual, is it, is it the KD, is it the water solubility, is it a combination of things? What, what really impacts that, that residual and, and makes a PPO better in the soil versus foliar? Yeah, good question. So, you know, there's, um, there's been a lot of work done to determine, you know, what really is more important. Is, is it water solubility? Is it, is, is it the, uh, 
the herbicide's ability to dissolve in organic matter, which is kind of that, that KD value. Um, you know, typically what we find is, uh, you know, the higher organic matter um, arid environments are where you need the, the, the higher rates of herbicide to get, to get meaningful residual. Uh, but the other things that, that can impact that as well is what was the soil moisture like when you applied it? And then um, what, what are the, the timing of the rainfall events? So to break it down into simplest terms, what you need is you need enough moisture there to keep the herbicide in solution and not too much moisture to where it dilutes it. And then as, as you dilute the residual herbicide, you have less of a gradient from high concentration in the soil solution to low concentration in the plant root. And so it's that gradient. The steeper that gradient is, um, the more it, it drives that diffusion process to get the herbicide into the plant. So you want just enough water to get it into solution, but you don't want too much water to where it's dilute. And then that gradient um, between high and low concentration is not significant enough to drive, um, to drive the, the uptake. Go into that chemistry. Um, but, I, but I like to tell people having moist soil is better than wet soil. And, you know, a half inch of rain every five to seven days is much better than, than an inch every seven days. Sure. So, you know, you really want to keep the soil moist without, without making it too wet. Yeah. So we, we talked about group 14 versus group 15 and trying to balance the overlapping or, or, or layering of residuals help me understand. So, so we seem to use PPOs well as pre's, but then sometimes it seems like we struggle with, with emergence with emerged weed control with PPOs. Walk me through kind of what, why do we seem to have such a high quality control with the pre, but then struggle with the post? Yeah. So yeah, so I think there, there, there's kind of there's two main schools of thought there that, that I'll address. The first one is is that um, with, with many let, so let's think about the PPO herbicides, the uh, the ALS inhibitors, and triazines. So those are three herbicide families that have foliar and residual activity. So the the, the first concept to think about is that with all three of those chem, uh, chemistries. When we, see, when we see foliar resistance, typically we don't see the same level of resistance as a residual, meaning you could have complete escapes to foliar applications on bigger plants, uh, but those herbicides could still work well on a freshly germinated seedling, you know, that has a radical of, of about that long. Yep. So I think that's, that's one reason. We just haven't seen that real broad scale um, failures to control emerged weeds because that level of resistance to a freshly germinated seedling is much lower than it is with a with a bigger plant. So I think that you know that adds a lot of consistency to those soil applied pre's. The other thing about all three, well, about two of those three chemistries is that they don't work on big weeds, and so um, even on small weeds, you need to kind of have your adjuvant system optimized to make sure you get enough into the plant to kill it. And then you throw a, a resistance mechanism on top of that as well. And, and there's just more chances for failure with a foliar application than there is with a soil applied application. What, what is it about that, Bill? You know, thinking about genetics and, you know, just some of the, the physiology, my, my nerdy physiology brains got me, got me thinking. What is it about a, a pre-emerged weed versus an emerged weed that would allow it to 
be impacted by by a certain active ingredient you know i'm, I'm picturing you know an emerged weed obviously would be producing sugars from photosynthesis right energy product you know there would i, I could see there there be a being a lot of what's the right word um ways that it could metabolize or mm-hmm. you know take uh, absorb that chemical and not be impacted versus a young struggling emerging seedling you know, just, just it's living off the seed, you know, so what, what is it about that that allows for that? Well, so it, it could be a couple of things. Number one, if, if it's metabolic resistance, it could be that that metabolic resistance um, is not present in that freshly germinated seedling yet. It could be that that metabolic oh. resistance doesn't really develop until that plant has leaves above the soil surface and you actually have some photosynthetic machinery. That could be one part. Um, the other part is that we know if, if you look at a lot of the um, any kind of enzyme assay, so whether it's a microbial assay or whether it's a drug assay or what um, herbicide assay, whatever, it, it takes a certain dose of the, the poison um, to overcome and bind in the active site. So, again, we're thinking here about target site resistance. And so when you have a small, freshly germinated seedling, have the just um, enough mass of that target site enzyme um, that can't be overcome with a high enough dose. So it's kind of like the dose makes the poison. So yeah. you have a much higher dose to to subject rate, and and that that could be overcoming even target site resistance. Oh, that man that makes perfect sense. That's interesting stuff. Um, so so let's uh, man, that's a lot of information. This is, this, <laughs> this is one of those interviews where you just can't stop writing down notes fast enough i get a kick out of bill every once in a while i i see i see like synapses in uh in andrew's brain and that was there was a there was a a light a light just came on um talk talk a little bit if you would you know one of the things as we think about resistance is talk about water hemp and and palmer amaranth and and how quickly they seem to evolve with with resistance what what makes those weeds so unique Oh yeah, great question. So you know, you you, you kind of have the the perfectly adapted biological organism to um, to survive in the event of nuclear holocaust. I think <laughs> you know, you, you have a weed that germinates over a huge um, window of time. You have a weed that has to outcross, and so just by the the nature of the genetics of of producing seed, you have to have pollen from other plants, and so. That means it's, it's just going to be very receptive to any kind of traits that, that the pollen carries along with it. And, and we know that most of these herbicide resistance traits can be carried on pollen. So that just leads to, you know, to rapid spread once once that weed um, becomes established in that area. So I think, you know, it's, it's basically just kind of the perfect storm of, of the traits in a plant um, that allow not only, you know, just survival under a wide range of environmental conditions, but also that develop. That, that ability to have these um, very variable genes in it that confer herbicide resistance, but don't make the plant less competitive in mm. the absence of the herbicide, meaning they grow just as vigorously and rapidly without the herbicide as they do with the herbicide, and they produce a ton of seed regardless of whether or not they have the, the herbicide resistance gene. So we haven't really been able to determine that there's, there's fitness penalties to having that trait yet. Hmm. Man, that's interesting stuff. 
I feel like I feel like with the with the way your head's spinning, Andrew, this could be a, this could be about a seven hour episode if we uh, if we had unlimited access to Bill's time and an audience that would consume that. But um, yeah, B- Bill, let's kind of just switch gears a little bit and let's talk about Group Four. Obviously, that's the you know it's a hot button issue in in soybean production right now is is two forty and and dicamba. Um, what do we know about resistance to those to those two chemistry platforms? Well, so what currently what we know right now is um, resistance to one doesn't confer resistance to the other. So even though we we call them both group four herbicides, the uh, the, the mechanisms by which those plants by which um, tolerant plants are able to metabolize or tolerate an application of those herbicides is is, is different. And so, you know, the simple analogy I, I use is that you can't spray 2,4-D on extend beans and you can't spray dicamba on enlist beans. You'll cause very severe injury and death. And so far, um, that's what we're seeing with the, with the weed populations. And so if you have a dicamba-resistant water hemp population, it's not controlled by 2,4-D. If you have a 2,4-D-resistant water hemp population, it's not being controlled by dicamba. So I think that's, um, you know, that, that's beneficial, you know, unlike what we saw with the ALS inhibitors, whereas, you know, when you had resistance to one ALS inhibitor, it tended to be resistant to more than one ALS inhibitor. We're not seeing that yet with, um, um, with the group four resistance. Yeah. Well, that's, that really ties in with my next question. And, and, you know, I've always wondered why, you know, often you look at some of our modes of action and, and we do have a lot of cross resistance, right? You know, um, why why do we not see that with with 2,4-D dicamba, you know, clopyrrolid, right? Um, and, and then also, you know, oftentimes I wonder, you know, as I study, I remember some of my graduate classes, you know, we, we'd talk about um, 2,4-D and, and dicamba. And oftentimes, you know, you wonder, you're looking at how it kills a weed, right? And oftentimes you'll see something like um, not fully understood. So what, what is it about that? You know, another question within that, what is it about that that, that, we don't fully understand yet. Yeah. And I think, and, and again, I'm, I'm not an expert on these auxins in terms of, of how they work, but um, we've had a couple of graduate students that, uh, you know, have done a good job of, of learning this stuff in a little bit more detail than, than their advisors were required <laughs> to do when they were in grad school. And uh, it, it looks like, you know, in, in simplest terms, there are some genes that are kicked on, when those herbicides are applied and that's why they're called auxin mimics sometimes as a as more of a slang term for them there's a complex set of genes that are kicked on that trigger a cascade of reactions but it's different genes that get turned on when these when these things are um, are applied whereas we we look at many of our other herbicides as as inhibitors they bind to a certain site when they bind in that site they look they don't let some of the downstream functions take place which results in death these kick on some genes that just result in things like leaky membranes, lack of cell integrity. And so it's kind of a, kind of like a slow, painful death. Gotcha. Well, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, pre's and, and posts in regards to dicamba and 2,4-D. You know, I, I think we're all familiar with maybe some of the resistance issues with weeds that are going on with those. Um, where, where are we in terms of, resistance with different species in, in, in both those? And is there certain species that are more prominent and, and prevalent across the corn belt in resistance to those active ingredients? Oh, which active ingredients against my, uh, my phone went off right when you started? Oh, no worries. Uh, 2,4-D two, two and dicamba. 
Oh, two for D and Dicamba. Yeah. Um, so if we get out into the Western Corn Belt, obviously there's there's some kosher problem, uh, kosher uh, populations that have developed some some problems. Um, if you go back to the you know the kind of the history of of those growth regulator herbicides, wild carrot was one that kind of popped up here in the Eastern Corn Belt, and that was in roadsides that were getting treated with a, with a lot of the oxen herbicides. Um, in terms of what we have in the Midwest, um, Nebraska identified the 2,4-D resistant water hemp population, which was growing in a in a in a fescue nursery. Um, basically, repeated applications in that grass uh, seed nursery. Um, dicamba resistance in water hemp has been identified in a in a couple of states. Um, we've got a hand. We've got one population here in Indiana that we've characterized. Um, fairly well there's a handful of others that, that that we need to look at more closely um and i know illinois is looking at some as well um, we're starting we saw a few more reports of, of failure to control water hemp with 2,4-D last year um as well and or when i say last year i mean the 2022 growing season so i i think we're you know, the, the, my analogy with with this 2,4-D and glyphos, or excuse me, 2,4-D and dicamba resistance in uh, in water hemp is I, I think it's going to be much like glyphosate resistant was in the early day. We're going to be trying to detect low levels of resistance. We're going to see plants that show a lot of injury symptoms. Sometimes resprays are going to control them. Sometimes if the stars are lined up right, the next growing season, we're going to get effective control with, with a labeled application. Um, but it, it's going to be kind of a slow, slippery slope that we go down. And it's not going to be like the, you know, kind of like the all or nothing thing that we saw with ALS resistance. Or once those ALS resistant populations um, started to, to rear their ugly head, you could literally set the jug on plants and, and you wouldn't kill them. So I, I think, again, we're going to be in this slow, slippery slope. And, and I think we, you know, with good stewardship, we are going to be able to sustain these technologies for a while. Um, but we re- what we really got to be careful of is building weed control programs that, that are not um, predicated on resprays. Yep. So doing the right things with the pre-emerge herbicide, being able to do, do a single post treatment to clean up just a few escapes, you know, not a train wreck full of escapes, and then be done for the year. And, and kind of get into that system where we, other, you know, rather than get into a system where these resprays are, are so important, because that's just, that's kind of a slippery slope that we go down and, and, and we tend not to win that battle in the long run. So walk me through that as, you know, we, we have a lot of listeners that are growers and, and they're in the process of planning their 2023 uh, pre and post plans. Walk us through kind of your thoughts on, on what does a really good plan look like? Yeah. So you know, I, I always tell people that, you know, your best laid weed control programs are the ones that are targeted at the right enemies. And so the, the first thing is to is to understand, um, you know, what, what weeds are the primary targets in that field? Is it water hemp? Is it giant ragweed, lamb's quarter, mare's tail, morning glories? You know, what, what is your target? Build your residual around that and then make sure that um, if you have a herbicide resistant problem with, with one of these main species, or you have one that you're just you seem to be losing the battle on. Um, what can you do to bolster that program? One of the simplest things to do is to look at that residual. And in the residual world now, we're looking at premixes. I mean, we can still buy straight goods, but every every retail outlet, um, 
every basic manufacturer, all the generic folks, they're all carrying some kind of a premix, and 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 there's a there's a strategy with it. But but my my concern with these premixes is that, that in most cases they're not loaded with full rates of of the active ingredient. Yep. You tend to have a lot of two half to two thirds rates of a couple of components and they're kind of built to be put down in front of a, a treatment that's sprayed post. And I kind of call them, and again, excuse my terminology, but I kind of call them the plan failure um, residuals because you know, you're going to have to come back and use that post emerge herbicide. So what I really encourage folks to do is think about, okay, what is the main weed that I'm going at and what, what is the most important active ingredient in that premix and then spike that spike the rate up with some straight goods, spike the rate up of whatever premix it is you're using in that field to at least get a meaningful dose on that worst weed problem. So that that's that's one approach. You know, just being smart about it. Don't don't go down to the retail outlet and, and say, hey, what are you selling and where's the cost? But what premix do I need to use to get these weeds? Well, and that's, I, that's I I really appreciate that because one of the things that that we've recently talked about, if you take any of these premixes that you're referring to, and you're exactly right, a lot of times we're, we're 40 to 70% of a full active load. And oftentimes, yes, we need to be aware of our spend and we, we don't want to spend money that we don't need to spend. But a lot of times for three or four bucks, you can take that, you can take that active residual to a hundred percent and you, you theoretically have just bought yourself that entire window and then I think being really aware of the timing, especially as we talk about early planted soybeans, you know, we, we've had the conversation that, you know, we used to be confident in just kind of laying that out ahead of the planter. And, and, you know, sometimes we're getting up five to seven days of a, of a only 25, 30 day control window. So we, we need to be really aware of that. So I think that's, that's a, a really important key takeaway is ask yourself for, very little money. Can I spike that AI to a full load? I think that's a great, a great call. Is, yep. is Bill, is there any, you know, knowing that we're, we're mainly, our, our listeners are mainly corn soy, right? And, and we know the problem weeds, right? Water hemp, potentially, uh, you know, mare's tail, giant reg. Um, is there any just off the top of your head, best recommendations? Hey, if I'm going to go put out, a, you know, burn down slash residual product, are there any just modes of action that you would recommend? And Hey, I, I would make sure you have these two or three, modes within that residual or, or program or is it or is it too complicated than that because of you know weed resistance in, in kind of area well so so i would say um our, our group 14s in in particular um you know especially in soybean especially in soybean group group 14 residuals in soybeans are are hugely important and because so much of the geography in in the north central region or the midwest is, is dealing with um, with small seeded broadleaf weeds. So I think those group 14s are huge. And those group 14s actually give you some, some give you some activity on foxtails and, and some of the grasses as well. You know, it's like yep. 50 to 70% at best, but 50 to 70% is better than nothing. So small seeded broadleaves, um, pigweeds, lamb's quarter, mare's tail, you know, those are, um, those are the ones that, that we can go after with those group 14s. You know, even morning glories and, and velvet leaf to some degree. Where we struggle with our soil applied herbicide programs in soybeans is giant ragweed. Um, we don't have great soil applied herbicides for giant ragweed if it's ALS resistant. 
If it's not ALS resistant, we have things like chlorancelam, the, the first rate products, and then higher rates of chlorimuron or the, the, the classic products that can work on the ALS susceptible giant ragweed. And even on the resistant giant ragweed, they give you a little bit of activity. Um, but again, not nearly as reliable as, as these 14s are on the small seeded broadleaf weeds. So uh, the 14s are hugely important. If for some reason someone is is totally against using the 14s, then then Metribuzin can replace those 14s. Um, but but again, you got to get that Metribuzin rate up high enough, and you're probably not going to get quite as long of a residual. You're still you can still build that Metribuzin to give you four to six weeks of residual. But if you build that group 14 right, you're looking at six to eight weeks of residual. So the Metribucin's just got a shorter half-life and it's a little bit more water-soluble. So I I think those those two going after the small-seeded broadleafs are huge. And again, if you've got ragweed and some of the bigger-seeded broadleaf weeds or velvet leaf or morning glory, um, something like chlorancelam or chlorimuron, so first-rate or classic in there, um, is, is a good place to be as well. I didn't mention the group 15s. Um, we do have some soil types, you know, particularly if we're on some light, low organic matter soil types. Um, maybe the group 15 is a better choice than a 14, particularly for the person that's really averse to having any soybean injury from the 14s or, or metribuzin. So those can be placed in the in that area as well. But those, for the most part, are real. They're going to be okay on grasses and some of the small seeded broadleaf weeds, but really not going to give you much help on the big seeded broadleaf weeds. That's a, that's a lot of good info. Um, that, that kind of leads into one of the questions that I, I know Matt wanted to, wanted us to ask and, and, and kind of just basic, basic residual, you know, kind of weed science 101. How do, how do residuals work? Yeah. So um, really what, what we need to think about with residuals is you have to have it not adsorbed to a soil particle at the same time that the weed um, has is germinating and that that root is emerging from the uh, from the seed. Okay, so that's that's the the magical sequence of events that you want to take place. So you want that thing in solution, but you don't want it too dilute um, to where that you know the, that gradient between high concentration in the soil solution and low concentration in the weed. You, you want to make sure you have a steep enough gradient so diffusion drives that um, that herbicide molecule into that germinating um, weed seedling. So that's the whole idea there. It, it's a it's a diffusion process. So we've got to get it in solution, and then it has to come in contact with the root. Then it gets into that root and, and, and does its damage. So most of these soil-applied herbicides are root-absorbed um, herbicides like the, um, the group 15s, once the shoot or the the part that's going to come out above the ground comes out of the ground. Those group 15s are shoot absorbed um, soil applied herbicides. Gotcha. Well, I, I think we're wrapping up with questions finally, although I do feel like I could go on for another hour, but in the respect of your time. <laughs> uh, so I, I know you do a lot of work in cover crops too. So, you know, as we progress in, in maybe some weed management discussions, you know, I, I often hear weed scientists discuss other modes of management, right? And mm-hmm. that's something we'll probably have to think about the, the further on down the road we get to, re, you know, with resistance. So, you know, what, what's your what's your thoughts and, and experience working with cover crops and, and how they reduce, um, you know, weed populations? Yeah, so um, 
you know, since Indiana is kind of a conservation-minded state, and uh, and you know, Purdue's always been really active at pr- promoting any type of a conservation, soil conservation type of a ta- tactic. We we've kind of jumped on this and and uh, gotten in with uh, both feet up up to our ears in some of this work, <laughs> and it's it's been really interesting to to work on. So you know, one of the things that 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 we've learned, and and many other universities have learned this as well. Um, a high biomass cereal rye crop is, is your most reliable uh, cover crop in terms of, of suppressing weeds, and it's nearly as reliable as tillage. Uh, we see fairly um, fairly good results on things like lamb's quarter, um, water hemp, and Palmer amaranth, and, and some of the annual grasses, um, where we tend to Variable results is in some of the bigger seeded broadleaf weeds like giant ragweed, morning glory, cockleburr, and some of those things that can emerge later in the year. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that, um, you know, where we need to get is somewhere above 2,500 to 3,000 pounds per acre of biomass. I think that window from about there to about 8,000, we can get pretty consistent suppression of mare's tail, small seeded broadleaf weeds and annual grasses. Um, if you get at, if you get biomass levels higher than that, uh, you still get very good weed suppression, but then you start running into some issues with crop establishment, you know, even planting uh, precision with, with, with trying to push through all that biomass. Yeah. The, the other thing that we've learned is that um, we see a fairly good weed control results by delaying the termination up till planting time uh, not a big fan of delaying that termination time past planting. So the, the planting green strategy. So in the Eastern Corn Belt, where we have kind of a moist environment, we don't see the added benefit to delaying the termination timing past, um, past planting and as far as weed control. Now, there may be some other benefits, but in terms of weed control, up till planting is where it's kind of maximized. And then you kind of get the same level of weed suppression by terminating late. And if you terminate late, you, um, you, two things happen. Number one, um, you, you take out your ability to use some of the herbicides that can't be put on an emerged crop. And then number two, you're trying to spray a cover crop that has been damaged by the planting equipment. Mm-hmm. And that damaged plant may be a little bit more difficult to terminate. So, so I'm, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm in, in favor of, of using cover crops correctly. Again, cereal rye has been the most reliable in our work. Things like crimson clover haven't been re- a, a, a good reliable weed suppression, but crimson clover is kind of planted for other reasons, the, the nitrogen fixing ability. Um, we started working now with this Balenza clover. Balenza clover is a clover that, um, um, it's a little bit slower to establish in the fall, but once it comes up in the spring, it grows about three times as fast as crimson clover. So it produces a lot of biomass in the spring. So that one for a legume cover crop may have some more weed suppressive potential there. And we're kind of in our second year of working with it. So I don't really have a lot of concrete results to report on that from a weed suppressive standpoint. Yeah. Well, I, I know my final question, Bill. Uh, I know Sean's got one more as, as we wrap up. Um, before we go, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit more on on, on this metabolic resistance, you know, just because it is such a, a, a serious concern. Um, wh- what do we know right now in, in terms of weed species and then also mode of action groups that, that maybe impact us right now when it, when it comes to metabolic resistance? 
Yeah. Well, um, it, it looks like uh, there's there's some metabolic resistance with with ALS resistance. So any weed that has uh, that's shown target site ALS resistance. I know particularly in in water hemp and Palmer amaranth, we we picked up metabolic resistance to ALS inhibitors. Um, we in in water hemp, metabolic resistance has been shown in a in a water hemp population to triazines and PPO herbicides as well. In uh, in this one population that we're working with, about an hour north of campus, um, the metabolic resistance is responsible for group 15 resistance. So any water hemp population that's showing group 15 resistance is is metabolic resistance. Um, the scary thing about this group 15 metabolic resistance is it's also it's also resulting in resistance to the group 27 or mesotrione based herbicides and then the group um, um, the group five um, basically atrazine or yes yeah, atrazine a five yes atrazine. Plus, yeah at the the group fives as well. So again, that one that one is scary because that metabolic reaction is is conferring resistance to at least three modes of action, and this metabolic one that we've just identified recently has given us resistance to 14s, um, to dicamba, and to to atrazine as well. Man, so we don't want to continue to go there, do we? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's a that that's a game changer. Um, it, it's you either call it a game changer or it's job stability for all of us. <laughs> and and I think, I, I think too, before Sean asks his final question, what would you suggest to growers who maybe don't feel like they have weed control issues now? Because, you know, I, I look at Australia and some of the things we've learned there with weed resistance, what would you tell a grower now that maybe doesn't have problems or just starting to see issues with resistance so that we, you know, just thinking to think differently so that we don't get to where Australia is in 10 years. Yeah. And, and that's been a, you know, so people like me with lots of gray hair, we have, <laughs> we have dealt with that question for, you know, our whole careers. And and so, sometimes it's, it's, it's frustrating. You know, I do a lot of county meetings. I'll go into a county that may not have glyphosate resistant water hemp or glyphosate resistant um where does that exist or, or, or anything <laughs> like that and I say, well we don't have it here so you know why you know why are you giving us this talk and you know you, what we're trying to do is convey the message that every resistance problem we've ever had um, has spread across the area that that active ingredient has used right and so if, if you're using that active ingredient you're going to have it so whether you're you know whether it's because it's moving on pollen or because there's soil moving or you're doing individual selection pressure right there, it, it's going to happen. So I think that, you know, the best thing to, and, and we're all creatures of habit, but the best thing that we can do is try to break up our, our uh, break up the, the tools or break up the weapons that we throw at the weeds. And so, you know, maybe we're in long-term no-till, but, you know, maybe at some point we bring some tillage back in there to help manage winter annuals and mare's tail. Yeah. Um, maybe we have a field that we've never tried cover crops in. Let's go ahead and put this cover crop in here with a full full rate of a residual and, and see what that does to us. So I, I think it's the, the key is to not do the same thing each and every year. It's OK yeah. to do to break up these things in three and five year blocks. But um, the more we do the same thing, the, the quicker 
we're going to get the resistance to the problem. And, and then we look at seed destructors and flamers and electrocutioners, right? There, there's a lot of technology, I think, that, that will get cheaper in the next couple of years. And hopefully we, we can start implementing some of that as well. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I, in uh, and, I, and I've kind of said this in a couple of talks that I've given this fall, you know, there there is more activity in the cultural method space than there has been any time in, in my career. And, you know, and, I, and I've been doing, some, if you count grad school, I've been doing this stuff since the late 1980s. And so we're looking at, you know, almost 40 years of doing this stuff. And I've never seen so much emphasis on cultural practices, some of them new, like cover crops, some of them old. I mean, we've been electrocuting weeds since the 1920s, so that's not new. But being able to put it on a 300-horse tractor and, and uh, you know, drive 10 mile an hour across the field is relatively new. Yeah. Um, managing the weed seed out of the back of the combine, you know, that's that's relatively new technology. It's simple, but it's relatively new technology, and there's still some engineering that needs to be done be done to kind of understand airflow and make, you know, make sure the seed gets to the right point in those choppers. Um, but it, but again, I, there's never been this much activity in that area. So I think that's, you know, that's an indication that, that um, you know, that some of these things are going to stick and we're going to need them because um, I, I don't see the next glyphosate coming into the pipeline uh, based on based on my view of, of, of what's happening right now. Part of part of what we try and do with this podcast bill is is, you know, generate key takeaways, both, you know, for growers and then obviously um, as agronomists trying to learn and, and make the best recommendations for the people that we get to work with. And I, I think it's interesting cause I just, I just kind of had a, a pang of guilt when you were talking about, think, think about your chemistry in a three to five year block, because we're, we're very guilty of talking about what worked last year, maybe making some minor tweaks to next year, but very rarely do we talk about, should we be making a consideration for a plan three years from now? And, and, and how do we back figure that into the chemistry we're going to use in these years? So um, you mentioned uh, gray hair and I guess uh, I think it'd be, uh, we kind of have two things to finish our show, but I, I guess it'd just be fun to know as you look back at your career, um, is there something that just really stands out as just a, something that you got to work on with your lab and research group that just uh, was just game changing or, or something that you think of as really a highlight of your career? Well, I, I remember back in the early 1990s when I was still in grad school and we're spraying Roundup on these beans that, uh, that Monsanto had, had brought to us <laughs> to evaluate Roundup. And then we were, we, well, we were spraying Liberty on beans at the same time. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be really cool. Yeah, you know that was that that was that that was a game changer. That that was neat stuff. I look so that, at that's as I think about you know big picture things that I thought were really cool and and influential. Um, that that was certainly it. Yeah, what a what a I obviously was a little bit younger then, but what a <laughs> what an amazing time in agriculture that must have been. And I uh, uh, some of the stories are are pretty amazing. Um, Bill, we do a process at the end of our show. Uh, where I where I cash in my penny. So our show is called A Penny for Your Thoughts, and I cash in my penny. So I ask Andrew um, to share with our listeners kind of his his key takeaways, and 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 certainly I would ask you to be very uh, critical of Andrew's takeaways <laughs> if you uh, uh, if you feel like you have anything to add. So Andrew, I'd like to cash my penny in. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's that time, and and you know I've, I've been doing much better at, at taking notes and, yep. and preparing for the end of this segment. But this is a hard one, Bill, because you know we get certain people on here where I, I can you know have that conversation back and forth. But with you, I'm I'm writing so much down and trying to absorb this stuff. 
you know, I always tell people it's hard when you're doing the, the interview because you want to absorb it, but at the same time, you got to guide the conversation. So I hope this does it justice. I know I'm going to re-listen to this like two or three times just to soak it all in, but uh, some of my key takeaways, I mean, the, the cover crop stood out to me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of cover crops in, certain, in, in a lot of situations, um, you know, especially when you start talking nitrate loss and, and all that, but with weed, weed suppression, you know, the, what's, what stood out to me was, you know, you mentioned the, um, 2,500 up to 8,000 pounds of, of biomass. And that's kind of the sweet spot. If I understand it correctly for, for cover crops to, you know, be successful at, at, uh, reducing weed, weed pressure. So that, that really stood out to me. Um, I, I was, you know, as you talked about, uh, how residuals worked, I think one of the key takeaways for growers and, and listeners just remember is, you know, it sounds like there's kind of a Goldilocks zone, right? Where you want, you want just enough moisture to go in solution. Um, but, but not too much, it's kind of a not too much, not too little, right? You got, you got too little, you're going to bind to soil colloids, uh, too much, you know, that, that active ingredient is going to dilute and you won't, you mm-hmm. won't get me potentially won't be as effective. Um, and, and then the third one, I, I think, you know, just, just, to I don't, I don't know what the right word is, but, you know, just discussing this whole target site versus metabolic resistance, you know, thinking about where we could potentially be with herbicides, where we are in some areas, you know, I think it's just a, a reminder that, that we want to do everything we can to manage these active ingredients. Right. So, you know, whether, whether we're dealing with metabolic resistance or target site resistance, it's, it's not fun either way. So I, I think the better off we are as, as growers, agronomists, everybody to manage and, and utilize the technology we have so that we can maintain efficacy over the years is, is very important. So I, I think that's a big key takeaway for me. So I don't, I don't yeah. normally, I don't normally chime in, but the, the other one that I'm going to add, cause I think it was really important. It was a great call out on the, on the premixes, right? We're, we're almost always buying a premix and I, I think it's really, really critical that we evaluate AI loads and make sure we take into an account if if we can maybe add um, add to those to make sure we have a full rate of of at least one of those active ingredients so we're not out there with half half rates of of our of our group chemistry. So, uh, Bill, uh, correct us or add to us. <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I think you you hit on you hit on all great points. Probably the, the one thing that popped into my head is as you guys were discussing those last two points, um, there's a, a gentleman that used to work for Monsanto. His name was Doug Sammons. And Doug Sammons was, 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 was a research fellow for many years with Monsanto. So he was a thinker. He was in the think tank. One of the things that Doug used to talk about is he would talk about how, um, how the herbicide dose was responsible for selecting for resistance mechanisms. So when we use full labeled rates, we tend to select more for target site um, resistance mechanisms, you know, ones that confer high levels of resistance. And for the most part, target site resistance are, are easier to solve than metabolic resistance mechanisms because we can shift to another, another site of action. Low rates of herbicides, um, whether they're soil applied or, or post-emergent, select for not only the, the target site resistance mechanisms, but they also select for all those metabolic resistance mm. mechanisms. So low herbicide rates are selecting for more mechanisms than high herbicide rates are. And so as you think about those last two points that, that you guys discussed, you know, it really um, it, it really propels us to think more about getting higher herbicide rates out there. And we know we're going to select for target site resistance, but 
this metabolic resistance may grow at a much slower pace um, if we get the right dose out there, the, the, a high enough dose out there. Yeah, that's that's some good info and good point there, Bill. Um, man, I, I really appreciate your time, Bill. Um, this this was a lot of good information. I, th- I think growers and agronomists across the Corn Belt will will find a lot of this information useful. So I, I really appreciate your time. It's it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you, and uh, we'll we'll keep in touch. Okay, sounds good. Well, uh, Merry Christmas, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you guys some other time. Thanks so much, Absolutely. Bill. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. As always, we love feedback from our listeners. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. We'll chat at you next week.